Sounds good. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Voice with Jules. I am happy to be here today on another episode joined by um, a really special guest. I'm really very pleased to have her on the show today because I think you're all going to learn a lot from her. She certainly has a lot to to share. And that is Carol Fenster, who is one of the Gluten-Free World's um, favorite daughters. She is has been really in the gluten-free community for as long as anyone. She's been gluten-free for over 25 years, has written over 10 gluten-free cookbooks. She's really been a leader and an inspiration to many of us, including me, and I'm very thrilled to have her on the show today. So thank you, Carol, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. Thank you, Jules. I'm delighted to be with you all. Well, I wanted to, to start out because I think, you know, for me, you know, I've been gluten-free for over 15 years now, and, and I, uh, I know very well who you are and everything that you've done. And, and, you know, it seems second nature to me that everyone else would know that too, but there could very well be plenty of, of listeners out there who aren't as familiar with you as I am. So can you just tell us a little bit about your journey, about your diagnosis and your family history, which is just so amazingly ironic, but, you know, to give us some of the flavor of the background from whence you came into the gluten-free world. World? Sure. Well, my saga began uh, a long, long time ago. I, I guess I, I had a lifetime of what I'll call sinus problems. I was always stuffed up and um, di- didn't really know why. I thought that was the way a life was supposed to be. And um, as luck would have it, I found myself in the office of um, someone, and this was in the late 80s, around 1988, who knew something about food sensitivities. And you have to remember back then in that time, we sort of looked at food sensitivities as something that was in your head. It wasn't real. It wasn't viewed as being real. And so I had a hard time getting convincing anybody to believe me that, you know, that maybe it was something I was eating because um, I, I didn't know what was wrong. At any rate, this person told me, stop eating wheat. Now, my, I, was, I was absolutely euphoric with joy because I had had this lifetime of, of problems, and I thought, well, this will be simple. All I have to do is take wheat out of my diet. Well, that euphoria lasted until I got home that night and began looking at the foods I could eat. And lo and behold, I had been eating a diet that was jam-packed with wheat just because that's how I was raised. And the part that you all may not know about me is that I was raised on a farm that grew wheat, actually, in eastern Nebraska. And that was the main food, uh, main crop that my father grew. And I remember as a child being able to sit around the, the table at dinner time and be able to recite the prices of wheat because that was such a major topic, you know, yeah. um, because, my gosh, that's what paid for our, that's how we lived. We also grew corn and, and oats and soybeans and things like that, but wheat was a major crop for us. So I was dumbfounded to learn that something that, that was so critical to my life uh, was something I couldn't eat. And as luck would have it, I married into a wheat farming family as well, so I'm actually married to 
um, a family that views wheat as the most important thing in the world, and how could you possibly mm-hmm. not eat it? So when I was told not to eat wheat, I didn't tell my family, at least the in-laws, <laughs> for another five years. Certainly not the in-laws. <laughs> not the in-laws. They just didn't get it. So mm-hmm. I was... Um, literally dumbfounded. And, and yet, remember, back then, there were no ingredients with the exception of just a few things like plain old white rice flour, and we didn't understand about blending flours back then. But there was really no place to go for help. And, and I didn't even know at the time that there were a few celiac groups around the country because we didn't have the Internet back right. then. So, you know, if you were diagnosed with um, being either to, to-, to avoid wheat or gluten or whatever you were told by a doctor, you really didn't have any other um, support other than your yeah. own family, and, and they might not always have been as willing to give it. So um, yeah. long story short, I, 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 I was familiar with cooking, not that I was taught to cook, but I had watched my own mother cook and you know you learn by observation and so I was the kind of person who cooked our own meals and so I I did have some basic cooking skills although nothing to do with gluten-free so I had to learn everything on my own and a lot of trial and error as, as a lot of I'm sure your listeners have gone through and um, I sort of stumbled around for about five years you know half-heartedly eating the gluten-free and wheat-free diet I worked, I was traveling a great deal in the corporate world, and it was so hard to stick to a, a really clean diet free of wheat. And so I constantly cheated I, because I didn't know mm-hmm. what else to do, either that or starve. And mm-hmm. um, finally, I can remember this day, I was um, away on a trip, and, and I was feeling miserable because, of course, the sinus problems continued because I was still eating the very food they told me not to eat. But I didn't, right. also didn't realize how prevalent it was and in, in hidden in foods. And back then we didn't have labeling. Yeah, the labeling. So really, no, you couldn't really read um, an ingredient label and, and know for sure what was or wasn't mm-hmm. in it. So I had this sort of revelation from the universe that came to me one day, and it, I just said to myself, you know, I'm really sick and tired of being sick and tired all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, I vowed, and that was 1994, to really get a very firm grip on my life. And what I was doing. So I quit my corporate job, and I'd had this idea of assembling my recipes into a cookbook, and I decided that's what I would do. And I published the first one in 1995, and and then I just kept going because as as things turned out, there were lots more people like me. And as as we know today, there are in fact millions of people who shouldn't be eating wheat or any gluten-related grains. So in a nutshell, that's how I came to be writing gluten-free yeah it's so it's so interesting um you know because your story mine is so similar and i wish you know i had even known about your books when i was first diagnosed i was diagnosed in 1999 and um and i I lived in rural united states um and there was no internet and there you know so there were no books to my knowledge on it at all um and certainly no celiac groups i didn't know anyone else who was you know had any sensitivities to gluten i didn't know what gluten was <laughs> you know and the, yeah. and the food labels yeah. were so bad and so you feel very very isolated and 
Interestingly enough, Carol, one of my symptoms of celiac disease was the sinusitis the, you know, that you had. That, that cons- mm-hmm. I would go through one after the other after the other of sinus infections, and they could never figure out what was wrong with me. They even um, thought I needed surgery at one point on my sinuses, which I didn't, and you know, it all <laughs> got better when I you know, was gluten-free. I do have celiac, but um, that was one of my many, many um, problems. But you were so fortunate to have found someone to identify a food um, sensitivity like that, especially back, um, you know, it seems like so long ago, things have changed so much in the world of, you know, food allergy recognition and uh, certainly with celiac disease and now non-celiac gluten sensitivity finally being recognized. So, you know, that you've come a long way, baby, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, just, we have gone, have, have made so many leaps and bounds from the very beginning. But yeah, I mean, I like I had the same experience. I was so isolated and I had to start from scratch and figure it all out myself. And, um, you know, it's it's a really interesting experience to do that. And then to to have people say, well, you know, how did you get to start writing cookbooks? Well, it really was a matter of, you know, these are the recipes that, you know, it sounds like you you are the same as, as I. You know, these are the ones that we sort of devised for our own lives, you know, exactly. to get through and to to make it work for us and for our families. And that's one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about today is, you know, the fact that, there are so many more gluten-free products on the market today. I mean, gosh, when you and I were, um, you know, first going gluten-free, there's nothing. I mean, there just was nothing. There's rice flour, as you alluded to, but you certainly couldn't go to a store and find something that was labeled gluten-free or even something that you might deduce was gluten-free, you know. And, and so you really had to start in your own kitchen and make so many foods at home for yourself and for your family. And I think a lot of people who are, especially, you know, those who are new to the gluten-free diet, are maybe lulled into a sense of security or, um, you know, believe that they can make an easier transition because there are so many gluten-free products on the market and there are restaurants with gluten-free menus and things. But yet in your cookbook, the the one that, that just came out, the, the redo of your Gluten-Free 101 that you've updated, I was reading in there and, and I, I just was like, yes, that's exactly the way I feel about it. I still think that the very best way to make the transition to gluten-free is to start in your own kitchen. You know, so many of the gluten-free foods on the market today are processed so highly and they're so refined and they're full of sugar and fat and all kinds of things. And when you go to a restaurant, you're not sure that they're really handling it well unless you're right. you know, at a restaurant that uh, has been trained and, and, you know, has some certifications to back it up. So I really feel like everyone does need to learn to cook to a certain extent and then once you get your footing, you can start experimenting with other products and going out to eat and things. But I really, I don't think things have changed so much in that regard. I really think people should start at home. Well, I completely agree. And I always tell people when um, they say to me, oh, you mean I have to start cooking? You know, they're just um, sort of overwhelmed. And I'll say, you know, yes, you may have to learn to prepare some of your own food. But that's a good thing. And I always tell them, here's why. First of all, that gives you complete control over the ingredients yes. that you choose, yes. you know. Secondly, you have complete control over the standards under which your food is prepared. You know not to let your food come in contact with, you know, other gluten-containing food. Um, It's cleanliness issues. And the one that I think really resonates with people, especially now that we're so focused on nutrition and we're hopefully getting um, focused on nutrition, is um, that 
if you prepare your own food at home, you are going to be taking in less salt, less sodium, less sugar, and less fat, and you're going to probably have a wider range of nutrients because you're probably going to be eating more fruits and vegetables, hopefully, you know. Um, so I think those are the benefits. And um, I also think there's something really, uh, call it zen if you want, Z-E-N. <laughs> I think there's something really important about and satisfying and gratifying if you can immerse yourself in the task, and it may be a very mundane task like chopping vegetables for soup or something. But there is a sort of quiet, um, I don't know, meditation that you can Take take joy in that you have some time to yourself and get the kids involved and get the family involved and make food preparation something that is important to your lifestyle as opposed to something that I think we have relegated it to, oh, let's get that over with right away so we can get the meal over with right away and get on to whatever else mm-hmm. you decided is more important. I think that's a sad mm-hmm. way you know, to look at our lives because I do think that I always say to me to the people who, want my advice. To me, eating is the most profound thing you do to your body every single day. It's more important to me than drugs that you may take or exercise. Those are all you know, valid points that we have to address, but I think what you put in your body in terms of food, it's our energy, it's our sustenance, our, it's our nourishment, it's our soul, and I think one of the saddest things in life is to go through life being forced to eat food that you don't appreciate or enjoy. Yeah. And, you know, so that's why I think that one good thing is that we have so many wonderful um, cookbooks out there that you can choose from and, and buy one that suits your style of eating mm-hmm. and then go for it. Let's go for it. You know, right. Enjoy, the, enjoy yeah. the journey. Yeah, and I think you make a really good point. You know, I, as I'm sure you do, I hear from people all the time who, you know, are seeking advice and help when they start the journey, but also who, you know, you begin to interact with through social media and otherwise, and and you can follow them on their journey. And one of the neatest things to me is when people come back and they say, you know, I thought this was going to be so hard, and Scott has ups and downs, but what it's taught me is something I never knew I didn't have, which was this family experience of preparing the food and eating the food right. and enjoying the food together. So you see these pictures of people will, you know, post on my Facebook page or something, pictures of their kids making, you know, gluten-free sugar cutout cookies, for example. Yes, and they say, yes. my kids have never made, you know, these cutout cookies before, before when they weren't even gluten-free. Like, we just didn't do that. I didn't, I never realized what we were missing in our lives. We now have family pizza night. We all get together. We make the pizza. We top the pizza. We do all these things together yeah. as a family. And it really is a wonderful experience that I think in today's society, you know, you have so many people, you know, two wage earners in the family and it's rush, rush, rush from one thing to another and we've lost that sense of you know togetherness at the family um you know dinner table but also of preparing the meals you know you know michelle obama is talking about teaching the children about where their food comes from and that's part of the process too you know i we have leftover night at our house which is can oftentimes be ravioli i'll make homemade gluten-free ravioli dough and the kids will stuff the ravioli yeah. And guess what? They eat it <laughs> like, because yeah, they because made they it, made you know? it. Right. even if it was something they weren't crazy about because they put it inside the ravioli and they helped to make it, then they want to eat it, you know. And these are all, you know, beautiful, wonderful benefits to getting back in the kitchen. And um, yeah. certainly I think it's a, a, a pearl <laughs> in yeah. the the life of a person who goes gluten-free. So I love hearing that from you and in your book as well, that we share that that view. 
Yes, and you know, there's another little piece to this um, eating at home, which is if you're gathered your family around the dinner table, there is research that suggests that that benefits your children in all kinds of ways, scholastically, emotionally, um, mm. you know, that, and you can find these studies you know, everywhere. But um, I, I think about that, too. That's where you share your day. You have more time to actually you know, reveal what your day was like, share the good parts, the bad parts, and become mm-hmm. more emotionally bonded, I think, over food. And gosh, if you can get the kids to help you prepare the food or even just set the table. I know my grandkids yeah. just think setting the table is, is great. I, I think, okay, well then let's set, have you set the table. <laughs> you know, yeah, hey, okay, well I'm not going to argue with you on that. <laughs> I'm not going to argue. But I, I do think they're, they're, that's yet another benefit of preparing our own food and um, enjoying it together. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. And, you know, it's you look for those little pearls that, that come up once in a while when you make the transition like this. I think, um, you know, one of the things, uh, some, I guess, I think it was kind or someone had um, done a Happy New Year thing last year and said, you know, what's the best thing about going gluten-free? And they asked me for a quote. And I said, you know, people might be surprised, but I think the best thing about going gluten-free for me has been I've been forced to read every single food label. And that not just keeps me safe as a gluten-free celiac, but I then read the food labels and I say, do I really want to put the other crap in that in my body or feed that to my children or what have you? And it's made me a healthier consumer and a healthier person all around because I never really paid attention to what was in my food before. And and these are things that come from being gluten-free. That's right. I think my diet is far healthier now than it ever was back when I didn't know what my problem was, but it, like you, it being being focused on what I should take out made me much more aware of what I was putting in my body. Yeah, and absolutely. And I needed to compensate for that. And while I think wheat is certainly a healthy food for those people who can tolerate it and all the other gluten-containing grains, um, there are so many other wonderful foods we can choose from, mm-hmm. including all the other gluten-free grains, you know, amaranth, buckwheat, sorghum, teff. Um, that yeah, and you do a wonderful job in in your book, um, Gluten Free 101. You do a wonderful job of really giving a a nutshell version, but certainly enough information of most all of the gluten free grains and seeds that are available to use as flours. And I think anyone going gluten free would really, um, you know, val- would would get a lot out of reading that because it it's a great primer on understanding. Yeah all the different options, and most people are surprised when they go gluten-free that, to hear that most grains and seeds that are made into flour in the world are gluten-free, you know, yeah. because there's so yeah. many choices. We just, as a culture, have gravitated to wheat, and so that's what's in everything. But if you look at the choices available, as you cover in your book, there are so many to choose from, and it can be so much tastier. You know, some of these flours have really wonderful, you know, nutty tastes or, you know, different oh, things, yeah. whereas wheat, you know, is very bland, and, and, you know, that has its place, but it's fun. You know, it's really fun to experiment with these different types of flours. I mean, with that, let's, I, I want to get into your book before we run out of time. I'd like to talk a little bit more about, about this book. Now, you had written the book, this Gluten Free 101, that was published first 10 years ago, is that right? Yeah, here's the story on that. I had written about maybe two cookbooks, maybe three, I honestly don't remember for sure, and I discovered that I missed the mark with a certain set of my customers, and that was the set of customers that didn't know how to cook at all. And as I mentioned earlier in our talk today, I grew up thinking everybody prepared their own food because I was raised in, in a rural 
eastern Nebraska, and you didn't have restaurants to go to, so you had to fix dinner every night and lunch and breakfast, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I thought everybody knew what I was talking about when I'd say, you know, fry the onions in oil for a few... Nobody... There was a whole segment of people that just didn't relate to this at all. And so I realized I had to step back and write a book that was for the real beginner, someone who really didn't have the um, the background that I did. And also, and I also learned that there's just a basic set of foods that we all tend to crave. And for us growing up in the Midwest anyway, it was things like meatloaf and fried chicken and, you know, those sorts of foods. There, tuna noodle casserole, macaroni and cheese, the things that we grow up with and yet have a lot of wheat in them because of the ingredients that are just naturally included. So I wrote, and back then I was publishing my own books. I don't know if people know that, but Back in that era, the big publishing houses were really not interested in, in gluten-free because nobody thought it was going to last. They just thought it was, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a short-lived trend or fad, and it'd be gone. And you don't, you know, they just they didn't want to invest in me. So, you know, I, so I was a self-publisher, and that was yeah. over ten years ago. The book has been in print all this time, but I just recently sold it to a big New York publisher who, and of course now the, the New York publishers are very interested in gluten-free. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very. So what I did with that book is I included everything that was in the original is still there, but I think we added about another 30-some recipes to kind of bring it mm-hmm. up to date with more contemporary things like uh, a red velvet cupcake, which I thought was critical. But in that book are <laughs> recipes that I converted from my mother's um, repertoire, yeah. such as her chocolate cake, recipes that were meaningful to me. And like you, it sounds like mm-hmm. you converted all your family recipes. That was the yep. first thing mm-hmm. I converted was the family stuff, the stuff that my family wanted to eat whether I could or not. So I had to make it so we could all eat it. Exactly. You know? And so that's why that book is is a very um, almost a homespun comfort food kind of book because that's what beginners tell me they miss the most is, you know, the foods they grew up with. The basics. The basics, yeah. So that's the story. And you you mentioned, um, and I was going to bring this up anyway because this is one of my favorite parts of this book, you mentioned the sort of the glossary, you know, know, what does it mean to fry something versus to saute something or, you know, things like that, to sift or to whisk. And, and all of those are in, in your book as a, a glossary of culinary terms for, for folks who really are very new to cooking. I grew up mm-hmm. the same way you did. I mean, I was in the kitchen with my mother and my grandmother constantly, and I had just understood these things as second nature. And it's it was surprising to me, you know, when I've, I've taught cooking classes, you know, as you have, like all over the country. And it's amazing how many people – really just don't know the basics not to there's nothing you know wrong they didn't do anything wrong they just didn't grow up no. that way you know and just, and so to to bring it back yeah and make it accessible is so valuable and i think you've done a, be- a really beautiful job in this book of of doing that and not making people feel ignorant just you know ac- educating them on the very basic facts of what they need to do you know the fact that recipes that say one egg means a large egg you know you and i know that yeah. but not necessarily someone else, and they wouldn't necessarily know if they went to the store and bought extra large or jumbo eggs, it might throw the recipe off, you know. And those are just basic things. They're not hard or complicated, but they're facts that you need to know. Measuring flour, huge discrepancies in the way that your recipe will turn out if you don't measure your flour properly. You know, so these are basic things. I even have a video on my website and my blog on how to measure flour. Yeah, I noticed that. 
Yeah, because you would know, you like give um, give the URL for the video if those folks would like to well, go and see the, um, how to measure flower. For the blog, it's for the blog or website. The website is carolfenster.com. Look under videos, and you'll see a whole bunch of videos. One will be how to measure flower, or my blog at carolfenstercooks.com. And again, look under the tab that says videos, and then scroll down, and you'll see how to measure flower. Of all the the um, troubleshooting that I do, you know, when people will call you and say, "Well, I'm having trouble with a certain recipe. It's just not turning out the way I think it should. What am I doing wrong?" That is the number one yeah. suggestion I give them is double-check how you're measuring flour. And as you know, I'm sure you watch food TV. Unfortunately, we have chefs on food TV who um, either don't like to bake, or and we're talking about baking primarily here where there's such yeah. a, a need for exact measurements. They'll say, well, a little of this, a little of that, or, yeah. or they'll show being shown how, measuring flour in a way that yields far more flour than they need, which makes our bake good yeah. dry. And unfortunately, our, our, our uh, gluten-free community sees that, and if they're not aware of what the correct ways are to measure flour, they just follow what they see on TV. And that makes yeah. our bake good, as you know, drier, and in some cases they won't rise as nicely because our mm-hmm. batters and doughs need to be wetter and softer in mm-hmm. general. So I, 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 that's the very first thing I suggest to anyone who tells me their baking isn't measuring up to what they think it should be is double-check right. how you're measuring. Literally Usually measuring up. <laughs> literally, literally. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, it can throw a recipe off by 25%. And exactly. if you are measuring inappropriately, especially, you know, if a recipe calls for a lot of flour, and, and then you feel sick to your stomach at the end of it because you've wasted all those ingredients. But, you know, well, that if it throws your recipe off by 25%, as you say, it can make it super dry, or it could have not enough, and then, you know, your bread will collapse or, you know, what have you, because there's not enough structure. So, yeah, basic things like that, which, you know, in some ways I think even people who've been cooking for a long time or people who are very accomplished gluten bakers – when they go gluten-free, in some ways, they really need the primer, too, because it's a different experience to bake gluten-free. Well, they do, and I know that in some cases these people um, actually – oh, I'm sorry about that phone. No, that's okay. Um, some people, they don't, um, they don't understand the basics and uh, of, of gluten-free cooking, and they apply what they've learned through gluten baking – and of yeah. course, it's it's misleading. And I think too, we often we all, if we have baked in the past, we go into a um, kind of routine, and we may not realize mm-hmm. that we're doing certain things, but we always did it that way. And we kind of, and then we realize, oh, I have to do it differently now because I'm cooking gluten free. And so right. there's a certain adjustment, as you say, in your practices. So yeah. But it's all, it, I, I keep saying to people, it's all very easily learned. It's not a big mystery. Yes. It's just a matter of right. practice. You know, go in the kitchen and try it and, and, and see how it turns. Always make a recipe the way that I'm sure you tell your clients this too, but make, when you have a cookbook, always make the recipe the way it's written in the cookbook, at least the first time. Mm-hmm. Because there's a good reason why it's, it's done that way. You know, the author has... Yeah intentions for you and then and then the next time you make it um they make notes in the margins but the next time you make it if you want to do some variations then then do um but always make it the, the way it was intended to be made at least for the first time you know yeah no i think that's a that's a great piece of advice yeah yeah 
Well, and some of the other things that you said in here, which I thought were really very um, interesting and um, and helpful for for particularly the the new to gluten free cook, but but really in anyone is um, appliances. For example, a lot of people think they can get by with just a hand mixer, and I you know I kind of go. Mm, you can, but if you're going to buy one piece of equipment for your kitchen, I would really recommend that you get a, a stand mixer, you know, that kind of thing. And everyone wants to know about the bread maker. Do we have to have a bread maker? No, you don't have to have a bread maker. But you give lots of helpful tips in your book about if you do want to use a bread maker, how to do it. Um, I've gotten a lot of questions about that recently. A lot of people have, for whatever reason, obtained, maybe it was the holidays, they, someone gave them a, a bread yeah. maker, but it wasn't a gluten-free setting bread maker, and it just makes right. things so much more complicated. And, you know, I have five different bread machines, and I've amassed them over these you know, last 25 years. I still, yeah, well, when you travel to teach classes, too. I mean, I don't know about you, but the, I bring bread machines with me, and then I end up, like, one gets dinged up or something, and then I get another one. And yeah, <laughs> I've got yeah, my, my wasteland of bread makers as well. But haven't you noticed that they all vary from one, one brand to another? Oh, drastically. Drastically. And what I tell people is, okay, if you want to bake in a bread machine, hopefully you can find a recipe that um, – works well in that particular machine given whatever unique features it's got. Because if you don't, you may have one recipe that works beautifully in one bread machine and will absolutely fail in a different brand because they all have their different features and some preheat, you know, and some don't, and some you're supposed to mix mm-hmm. all the ingredients. I mean, the variations are incredible. So I, um, I know that there are a set of people who are just so wedded to their bread machines that they just Mm -hmm. don't want to give them up. And so I try my best to help, but in the end, um, like you, I feel it's best that has a gluten-free option on it or at least has some gluten-free recipes in the instruction Mm -hmm. book that you can turn to and then say, oh, that's how they say I should do it, and then maybe right. work off of that recipe because hopefully the developers of that recipe designed right. it specifically. You know, but yes, mm-hmm. is not the salvation I guess we all think it should be. And I love baking just in regular loaf pans because yeah. I have complete control. And I like control. Fresh. I was just gonna say that I just I prefer to bake in the oven, you know, with my stand mixer and then my oven because I have control. And if right. it's just not rising as much as I want it to that day, I can let it rise longer, you know, or whatever I need it to do, and I have control where the bread machine sort of takes the control away from me, which has, you know, there's good reasons for that too. But um yeah, it's every machine is so different, especially you're talking about comparing like a Zojirushi with two paddles to, you know, where yeah. you have to program each setting to something like an Oster or, you know, a Breadman or whatever, which is, you know, plug and play, but um, doesn't bake nearly as long and has one paddle and, you know, it's just, there's so many variations. But yeah, it's it's hard when you feel those questions from people because there's so many different even within the brands, there's so many different machines. So, but it's nice you do have a good um, section in here on that, and um, you know, on bread machines and what to do about that. And you also talk about you know dairy substitutes and all kinds of things, which I you know always appreciate because I try to to give those substitutes for everyone in my books as well. Because there's so many people who can't have dairy oh, anymore. Like, it's like over half of the, the people, at least. I don't have a definite number, but I know it's well over half cannot handle dairy at all and so yeah sixty percent uh, of the adult population has lactose intolerance to some there degree you are. there you are and 
you know, they may or may not know it, <laughs> but yeah, well, I mean, it's yeah. and it's it's amazing. But biologically speaking, I mean, adults aren't supposed to be drinking another animal's milk anyway, so there's no real reason for us to be able to break down lactose when we're adults, but exactly. a lot of people retain the ability. Ironically, in our society, we should be looking at those who can drink and eat dairy products as the unusual ones. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's true. It's a flipping, flipping it on its head, but it's true. But, again, it goes yeah. back to the wheat thing, too. That's just what we're used to. In our culture, people eat bread made with wheat. In our culture, people drink milk from a cow. It doesn't mean that it's right or preferred or natural, but that's just what we've grown up with. And, and so when you do find yourself faced with food sensitivities or things like celiac disease, you know, you kind of have to forge your own way, which doesn't mean that it's wrong. It's just different. And, you know, I think finally we are seeing so many people with food sensitivities, food allergies, celiac disease, that, you know, the – society is starting to recognize that it's becoming more the norm, that everybody's got a little something or, or knows somebody with, you know, an inability to process certain foods. So it's good to address all of that in, in a cookbook as well. It's not just about gluten-free, but there's so many people who need other things as well. But before we go, I just wanted to mention one other thing that I loved in your book, and it's the idea of planned overs instead of leftovers. I love that phrase. Did you come up with yeah. that yourself? You know, That's I don't great. Think I love it. So. I think I probably heard somebody use that phrase, but uh, at our house, leftover has a negative connotation to it. And so I, um, I don't normally use the word leftovers with my family. I'll say, well, you know, I planned this so I have extra, let's say when I roast the chicken, I have extra chicken. So um, I'll use this extra chicken or and because I planned to have extra. Um, yeah. We'll use it in a pot pie, you know, as opposed to saying, well, it was leftover from last night's meal, and so it's somehow the dregs of the, of the meal. Exactly. You know? So yeah. uh, I, well, I actually I, I love it. I think it's brilliant. And and we do the same thing. We just haven't been calling it planned overs, although I, I might start <laughs> adopting that term. <laughs> but it we I mean, if I'm going to go to the trouble of making a dinner, I'm going to make extra because, you know, even Amen. if you can exactly. eat it the next day or you can repurpose it. We we grill vegetables or salmon and that kind of thing. And we'll always grill way more than we need. And then the next day I'll throw it together in some quinoa or I'll make a quiche or, you know. So it becomes you know, part of the, what the rest of the week looks like in terms of our family meals. The ravioli I mentioned to you earlier, you know, shrimp can go on pizza. <laughs> so it, it, yeah, um, yeah. I think it's, it's wise, actually, to do it that way and economical, and it certainly saves, um, you know, a lot of time as well. So I, I love it. Planned overs is my new word. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to adopt that. I'm going to say thank you, Carol, every time I use it. <laughs> okay. You're welcome. <laughs> well, thanks again so much for taking time out of your schedule. It was lovely to talk to you. And your book is beautiful, and I um, recommend it to everybody who's new to gluten-free for sure, but even those of us who maybe you know need a little bit uh, of help back in the kitchen and want to revisit some of those family recipes. It's a beautiful book, and it's just um, come out, and um, I would highly recommend it, Gluten-Free 101. And once again, Carol, could you give everyone your website? Yes, it's simply my name, carolfenster.com, C-A-R-O-L-F-E-N-S-T-E-R. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Carol, and all the best to you. Thank you, Jules. Bye-bye. Bye.